when the reclusive billionaire Howard Hughes died on April the 5th, 1976, there was no one in his immediate family to claim the body. No one visited the funeral home to pay their final respects. There was no will, no one who could say that they were his dear friend or his close relative. Because in his estate he owned several gambling interests in Las Vegas, his company's public relations director called the casinos in Las Vegas and asked if they would honor his death by giving a minute of silence. And so on April the 7th, the PA systems and the casinos of Las Vegas announced the death of Howard Hughes and asked for a minute of silence in order to remember what they called a great American. Time magazine reported that event in this description. Casinos fell silent. Housewives stood uncomfortably clutching their paper cups full of coins at the slot machines. The blackjack games paused and the crap tables at the crap tables, the stick men cradled the dice in the crook of their wooden hands. Then a pit boss looked at his watch, leaned forward and said, okay, roll the dice, he's had his minute. I sometimes wonder if that's the way many of us approach worship. We go about our lives, lots of busyness, lots of activity, Sunday rolls around, and we make plans to come and we gather together and we do what we do for an hour, an hour and a half and then we think, okay, we've given God His hour and then we rush right back into the way that we have been living. It's easy to come to a worship service like this without giving much thought to what it is that we're actually doing here when we gather. The demands of life, the responsibilities that weigh upon you, the difficulties you have, as well as the pleasures you have, all can distract you from thinking seriously about what it is that we do when we meet together like this. Yet, the true worship of the true God is something that each of us desperately needs. We need to worship God in order to function well in this world because without true worship, we will easily be swept along with all of the currents of the day, imbibing in the values of this world, believing the things that we are told are important, but regularly coming into the presence of the living God with the people of God, we are empowered to look through the mirage of what this world portrays as valuable and right and good and desirable. Worship reorients us. It refreshes us. It reminds us of who God is and of who we are and of what the ultimate point and purpose of our lives truly is. Worship also matters to God. He cares what we think about Him. And He is not indifferent to what we say and do when we come to worship Him. In fact, he not only cares about our actions and our words, he also cares about our attitudes and our thoughts as we enter into worship. That's why he has spoken so clearly in his word about worship. He intends for our worship to be regulated by his own word and not by our whims. 
The Bible prescribes for us what we ought to do and how we ought to approach God in worship. And the one overarching requirement that we find in the Word of God, the one thing that God always requires of those who come to worship Him is very often the one thing that is lacking in much modern contemporary worship. And that's reverence. Reverence. Acknowledging that God is who the Bible says He is and that we are His creatures. We will see in our text this morning from the book of Ecclesiastes how reverence for God is set before us as that which we must aspire to, we must, pre we must prepare for, and we must seek to enter into worship with as we come to times like this. Our text is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the first seven verses. This is just the next section that we come to as we are working our way through this Old Testament book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's found on page 555. 555. I encourage you to, to open a copy of God's Word or turn on your... your um, uh, digital device to God's Word so that you can follow along with the text because I'm just going to be walking us through these words from Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 this morning. First, I want to read this text for us so you follow in your Bible as I read aloud from mine. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not, or be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Worship God reverently. That's what the preacher here in this portion of this book he has written is saying to us, he's calling upon us to enter into worship with reverence. When we come to worship God in times like this, we should remember what Ian Proven wisely reminds us of, that God must be the focal point of worship, not the self, and that the Word of God should take priority, not the words of the worshiper. This is what the text says to us, these verses that I've just read. Up to this point in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, that's the way he identifies himself as the author of this book, he's given us mostly his observations on life. Life in a fallen world. Life not the way it's supposed to be. Life under the sun where he's not considering God, not regarding God, just trying to be honest in the way things unfold day in and day out. And so he acknowledges those observations and he makes conclusions based upon them. But in our text this morning, we hear him shifting gears and beginning to admonish us. There's 
admonition after admonition in these seven verses, repeatedly calling us to be careful how we approach God in worship. What I want to do is look at the instructions that he gives to us by calling attention to four specific admonitions, warnings that he gives us to help us worship God reverently. The first is found in verse 1. Be careful how you enter into worship. He says, guard your steps. In other words, remember, take note of what you're doing. Guard your steps when you're going to the house of God. Remember that it is God's house. God is the one into whose presence you are entering. When you worship God, you are not to approach Him casually, as if you're just dropping by a friend's house for a visit. Rather, we're coming where God has promised to be present. In the Old Testament, God promised His presence in physical spaces. First, He did this with Israel, with the tabernacle, and so He had them build this tent. It was portable, but this tent was designed to have a place in it in the innermost sanctum where God would manifest His presence. Later, He did that same thing with the temple, which also had this inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, where God would specifically manifest His presence. Yet the construction of both the tabernacle and the temple were designed to limit access to God, to prohibit anyone from entering into His presence casually. In fact, if you were just a common Jewish person, a member of the Old Covenant community, you could not personally enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. Old Testament Jews could only enter into the holiest place where God manifested His presence representatively. They had someone who would go in their behalf. It was their high priest. And even the high priest could only enter one day a year. And then he had to be clothed just right. And he had to take the blood of a sacrificial goat as an atonement offering to this holy God into whose presence he was entering. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as our great and final high priest. It is by his life and death and resurrection that we now gain access into the very presence of God. All who turn from sin and trust Jesus find in Jesus the way to God so that through Him we can know God. When Jesus died, Matthew 27 tells us that at the point of His death, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It was symbolizing the presence of God is now accessible to anyone who comes to God through the crucified Savior. So Jesus has opened up access to God. What that means is we're no longer dependent upon any building, upon any location to find God's presence. Because Christians are collectively called the building of God in 1 Corinthians 3.9. We are His temple. All who name the name of Christ, 2 Corinthians 6.16 says. So today, whenever, wherever the church of Jesus Christ gathers, that is where God promises to be present. 
Jesus elaborates this point when he's teaching on the church in John, I mean in Matthew chapter 18, when he says in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So what that means is that God is here. What that means is we gathering in the name of Jesus Christ based upon the faithfulness of Jesus to keep His Word can say, the risen Christ is among us. Christ is here. You can believe it or not believe it. But based upon the authority of His Word, it is true. What we're doing this morning, we're doing in the presence of God. If we think about that. We contemplate that. We let that sink in. It will cause us to guard our steps. It will cause us to be careful how we approach Him. Well, how are we to be careful? What does that entail? That entails coming to listen to God. Coming to hear what God has to say to us. Again, look at verse 1. He says we come to draw near to listen. To listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. The offering of sacrifices during the Old Testament era was characterized by silence on the part of the worshipers. The worshiper was quiet. You know, we don't much like silence in our day. It makes us uncomfortable. That's why in some homes, maybe yours, you always got to have the TV or the radio or, or something on because silence is unnerving. And yet, there's something very useful about silence in worship. So in the Old Testament, when the worshipers would take their sacrifices to the tabernacle, to the temple, the priests would take those sacrifices. They would read from the book of the law what God required. And they would explain that. And then they would offer up the sacrifices in behalf of of the worshiper, they would pray, and then the people would respond often in songs, and the priest would pronounce a blessing. That's contrary to what the wise man is warning us against when he says guard, that we should guard against offering up the sacrifice of fools. Fools offered up their sacrifices thoughtlessly. They didn't care what God said about how and what ought to be done in worship. Malachi chapter 1 is a record of this very failure on the part of Old Testament Jews not worshiping God in the way that He had prescribed. In Malachi 1, after the Lord reminds His people that He intends for His name to be regarded as great and for them to honor Him as the true God among all the nations, this is what He says in verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts, what God requires. What God requires in worship. You just chuckle at it. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God's law required them to offer up their best. They weren't to take the lame sheep 
They weren't to take a wounded sheep. They weren't to take a, a, a spotted sheep or a stolen sheep. They were to take their best sheep and offer it up in worship. And yet what they were doing was worshiping God not in accordance with what He had prescribed, but they were worshiping Him according to what was convenient. What was convenient? Much more convenient to give this that I've just stolen. Much more convenient to give this weak, sick sheep. This is what our text means by the sacrifice of fools. It's evil. They didn't know it was evil. It just seemed convenient. They thought, surely God will be okay with it. I'm doing something. I'm giving Him His minute. Too often we approach worship as a matter of convenience, don't we? We do this rather than seeing it as a matter of our need. A matter of our need to meet with God and hear from Him and seeking to do what He has called us to do in worship. I want to ask you, have you ever just simply decided that you we're not going to gather with God's people in worship because you just didn't want to. Not because something came up and you were sick or you had to work or, or something that was beyond your ability to control, but just maybe you wanted to go to the beach. Or maybe you just came up with something better to do. I need family time. And you feel justified in it. What's going on there? You're worshiping God as a matter of convenience. It is no longer convenient for you and so you feel fully justified in setting aside what God has called you to be and do. Have you ever come to worship drowsy, lethargic, sleepy, not because you had to work all night and your baby kept you up throughout the night, not because of things beyond your control, but because you just decided that you wanted to do some things on Saturday night that were pleasing to you and you didn't care about the impact that it would have upon your worship on the Lord's Day. What is that? Isn't that exactly what we're being warned against here? Falling into the trap, offering the sacrifice of fools, falling into the trap of worshiping God as a matter of convenience. You ever enter into worship thoughtlessly just because it's the next thing to do on your agenda? It's just a matter of habit to you. Our text tells us to be careful to be careful about coming into the presence of the Lord like this. We should draw near to the Lord to listen. To hear and to heed what it is that He has to say to us. Brothers and sisters, this is vital. You, if you haven't put it together yet, I hope you will today. Do you know why we read so much Scripture? Why the Bible is taught? Why we sing Scripture? Why we pray according to Scripture. Why we want Scripture read. We want our services to be saturated with Scripture. It's this very reason. We come to worship to hear God. We need to hear from God. And God speaks to us through His Word. We know that we are in desperate need of hearing from Him. Jesus emphasizes this point Himself. Repeatedly in the New Testament, nowhere do we see Jesus underscoring the importance of this more clearly, more prominently than in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, what we have is 
Jesus speaking to seven specific churches in the region of Asia. He himself is addressing them through his messenger, the Apostle John, who wrote down the message and gave it to the pastors of those churches who went back and in a gathering like this, read the words of Jesus. And each church was different, and so he has a different message for each church, just a church just like ours. Something specific to say to them. But do you know one thing that Jesus says to every one of those seven churches? This is what he says. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen. Listen. When you come together to worship, come seeking to hear from God. We should come carefully into worship. Brothers and sisters, a very simple way that you can do this is take time on Saturday night to pray and ask God to speak when we gather on the Lord's Day. Sunday morning, take time and ask the Lord to speak, to speak to you. Do you pray that God will speak to you directly? That He will have a word for you this morning? It can revolutionize your life and your approach to worship if you realize that one of the main responsibilities, one of the main opportunities we bear in worship is to hear from God. God promises to be present with His people. And He speaks through His Word. Be careful how you enter into worship. That's the first warning. The second one is this. Be careful what you say in worship. We see this in verses 2 and 3. From warning us about our attitude and approach, the preacher gets even more specific by warning us about the words that we might use in worship. He tells us to be thoughtful and cautious in what we say to God, what we speak to God. Now, we should be careful in our speech at all times. The, the Scripture's very clear on this. Jesus in Matthew 12, 36, as I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Isn't that a sobering thought? I think of this, the careless words I've spoken. And there's a day of reckoning coming for that. James 1, 9 says, we should be slow to speak. Quick to listen. Proverbs 10, 19 says that where words are many, transgression is not, lack, not lacking. Multiply words, multiply sin. This is a truth that we ought to live with all the time, but it's especially important for us when we gather in worship before the God, the, the God who created us and we contemplate what we're going to say to Him and say before Him. In verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. And then he ends it with, let your words be few. We should be thoughtful about what we speak in the presence of God. In other words, we should use an economy of words. We should not babble. We should not ramble on mindlessly. Jesus teaches us this when he instructs us to pray. How to pray. How should we pray? Matthew 6, verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, he says, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, he says, don't measure the value of your prayers by their length. Don't think that speaking many words in prayer makes them more spiritual. 
Don't think that you've got to somehow convince God of something or instruct God about something or argue God into a position that He's reticent to take. And Jesus says, your Father already knows before you say what you need. That confidence sets us free from thinking in any way that we can manipulate God with our words. We want to remember who God is. Remember who we are. This also is in verse 2. You see it in the middle? We're to be careful how we speak, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Now, the preacher here is not making a point of geography. He's making a point of theology. He's reminding us of the great difference between God and ourselves. He's the creator. We're His creatures. He lives in heaven and rules We're creatures of earth and are under His rule. We need to remember who God is and who we are. Indeed, He is our Father. Jesus taught us specifically to call God our Father. When you trust Jesus, you can know the God who rules, the God who is eternal, is your Father. But He said, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven. He's not our buddy. He's not on the same plane with us. He is completely different from us because he's self-existent. He's completely independent. He needs nothing. And none of those things are true of us. When we come into the Lord's presence for worship, we need first and foremost to remember who he is. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are dependent upon him. He is not dependent upon us our lives are in his hands when we come to worship perish the thought that we're doing God a favor by showing up that we're somehow adding something to him that he would otherwise not possess God is the one who grants us an audience in worship he condescends to us He is willing to stoop down to be with us. That is what the incarnation of Jesus Christ is all about. Our great and glorious God became a man to be with us. To come to save us. To rescue us and to unite us with Himself. We need to be thoughtful and wise in what we say to God when we come in worship why we're so careful about what we sing in worship we want to sing things that are right and good and true and appropriate it's why we're careful in what is preached in worship because it needs to be from God's word and true to scripture what this means is that we're not free simply to wing it in worship we cannot honor the Lord and enter into worship thoughtlessly and casually We can't decide that we're going to do what we want to do, how we want to do it, say what we want to say. As verse 3 says, For a dream comes with busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. That is, when you let yourself get overwhelmed with business and the matters of life, your mind gets taken away from this fundamental reality when you enter into worship that God is God and we are His people. We're creatures. And it's easy to have your mind drift into vain thoughts. When you multiply words without thinking, it's 
Scripture says you're speaking with the voice of a fool. You're just speaking to hear yourself talk. God cares what we say and what we do when we come before Him in worship. This point was driven painfully home to Aaron and the people of Israel after God had led them out of captivity in Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness. In Leviticus chapter 10, let me read to you what happened when God's worship was profaned by the very sons of the high priest Aaron. Leviticus 10.1 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. We, we look at that and we think, well, it was just boys being boys, right? I mean, they didn't do what God said. and They did things God didn't say when they were offering up their worship. But hey, they at least were there. I mean, they were at least trying, right? God takes seriously what we say and do in worship. And He made that point graphically clear to Aaron as Aaron watched his boys consumed by God's fire from the altar as they played around with it. Not only are we to be careful in how we enter into worship, we're to be careful what we say in worship, but we're also to be careful in what we vow before God. As we worship. Verse 4 says. When you vow a vow to God. Do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Now, now this is a re reference specifically. To the Old Testament law. Governing vows. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verses 21 and 22 says this. If you make a vow to the Lord your God. You shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. What we're being told here is just keep the promises you make to the Lord. Don't thoughtlessly declare your loyalties and resolutions to live for Him. Don't offer to do something for Him and then withdraw the offer. Don't make a promise and then fail to keep your promise. The Bible does not forbid making vows. What it does forbid is making sinful or foolish vows. Using vows or oaths to get out of legitimate responsibilities. This is what some of the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. You can read about it in Mark chapter 7. When Jesus condemned them because he said, Oh, yeah, the, the scripture says, Honor your father and your mother. But you say to your mom and dad, Oh, mom and dad, look, I can't really help you. I can't take care of you. Because I've dedicated everything I have to the Lord. I made a vow to the Lord. Corban, it belongs to the Lord. Sorry. And he says, you make your vows in order to disobey God. That's a sinful vow. It is condemned throughout Scripture. But vows are often made to God in Scripture as an expression of devotion to Him. That I will do this for the Lord. We see this in 1 Samuel, 
where Hannah is praying. She was a woman who wanted a child. God had not given her a child. And so she prays, oh God, give me a child. Give me a son. And I'll make my first son a priest. I'll dedicate him as a priest to the Lord. And that was Samuel. She made a vow to the Lord. She kept her vow. Better not to make a vow than to make it and not keep it. This is what the text tells us. Verses 5 and 6. God takes the promises we make to Him seriously. And failure to fulfill what we promise to do is sin. And if you fail to keep your word, then you will be tempted to try to justify your sin, thereby making your situation even worse in the eyes of God. That's verse 6. Let your mouth let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What he's referring to here is a worshiper goes before the Lord, maybe like Hannah, says, oh God, if you'll give me a son, I'll dedicate him to be a priest. And the son comes and the mom doesn't want to give him as a priest. And so she holds back and the messenger comes and says, but wait a minute. The priest comes and says, you promised your son would become a, a Levite, would become... A priest, and she'd say, oh, oh, that was a mistake. I misspoke. I didn't really mean that. And in doing so, the scripture says, why will you provoke God to anger at your voice in this way? Why will you tempt him to destroy the work of your hands? Here's the point for us. God wants us to worship him from the heart. To keep promises that we make to him as his children. It is a call for integrity and honesty in worship. To say what we mean and mean what we say. This, this is not to inhibit us from declaring our intentions, knowing we're dependent upon the grace of God, knowing that we fail in our best efforts. This is to sober us with a sense of when we make a promise to the Lord to do something specific, that we should keep that promise. Again, this point was driven home graphically to the first century church in, in Jerusalem, in the wake of the great revival, God's Spirit being poured out at Pentecost, thousands of people were being converted and added to that church in Jerusalem. And in the midst of that Spirit's in, empowered move of God, people began to take care of the needs of the poor. And there were folks who lost everything because they became Christians. They were cut off from family, cut off from jobs, cut off from their society. And so the church began to care for them and one of the things that they did in order to care for them is people began to volunteer to sell their stuff and to give the money so that it could be distributed to take care of the needs of the poor in the church well in Acts chapter 5 in the midst of this going on people selling their material possessions bringing the proceeds to the apostles and saying use this use this in Acts chapter 5 we have the story of a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira and they sold some property that was theirs. And they must have promised to give the full proceeds for this same purpose as other people were doing. Because when they came before Peter, first the husband, then the wife, he said, how much did you sell the land for? And Ananias said a certain amount. And Peter, as an apostle, being given the power by God's Spirit to know he was lying, says, you just lied to the Holy Spirit. God killed him. I mean, can you imagine in our service right now if someone were to stand up and, and lie and then drop dead? God killed him. And then his wife came in 
And he said, I'm going to ask you, Sapphira, the same question. He said, how much did you sell the land for? She gave the same amount. They'd obviously conspired on it, lied. God killed her. Now, the, the problem wasn't in the fact that they were obligated to give all of this. They, they just needed to keep their word. They just needed to be honest. They didn't have to give anything. That wasn't the point. The point was that they had made a promise and they did not keep their promise. God wants integrity in our worship. We shouldn't make promises to Him that we do not intend to keep. This includes the songs that we sing. We should not sing songs lightly. I'm not trying to inhibit you from singing whenever we come across those phrases in our texts of hymns that say we are going to live this way. I am saying we ought to sing those with humility, with a sense we're completely dependent upon God to fulfill this. God, this is my resolve. This is my determination. By your grace, I will. Rather than just mindlessly saying it, letting the words roll off our lips without any intention of our heart to live that way. We should sing like we mean it. Better yet, we should sing because we mean it. So be careful how you enter into worship. Be careful what you say in worship. Be careful what you vow in worship. Finally, the last verse, verse 7. Be careful to fear God in worship. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. In worship, don't let your mind multiply dreams or your lips multiply words. The result is only futility and emptiness. Come letting your mind be regulated, your imagination be harnessed by the word of God. Resolve to worship God in the way that he has prescribed, not according to your own whims. Approach God not on your terms, but on his when you approach God on your terms and you let your imagination and your desires and your inclinations set the agenda of how you're going to worship, in reality, that is vanity. And it's vanity because it is not worshiping God. It is worshiping yourself. It is saying, I will do what I think ought to be done. I'll come on my terms. When I choose, doing what I want. God has revealed to us in His Word His will for our worship of Him. And as those devoted to Him, we must seek to conform our intentions and our activities in worship in accordance with His revealed will. Jesus put it very simply when He talked to that woman of Samaria at the well in John chapter 4 when He said, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What he is saying is that if you're going to worship the true God, you must worship Him spiritually. You must worship Him from your heart. You must worship Him with integrity, sincerity, and you must worship Him in truth. That is, in accordance with what He has revealed. His Word is truth. And so when we come to God, we come humbly offering up ourselves to Him, seeking to understand what He requires, how He has prescribed our approach and worship should be, and conforming ourselves to it. We do this. Why? Because God is in heaven. And we are on earth. He is in charge. Or as the preacher puts it here in his conclusion in verse 7. God is the one. That we must fear. Fear him. 
revere him. The fear of God is the foundation of godliness. To fear God is to remember who he is. It's to remember who we are in his presence. It is to say with the psalmist in Psalm 89, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. It is to come to this God with these convictions that are revealed in his word in the only way that he has provided. It is to come to him in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to God. So you cannot worship God in truth. You cannot worship Him in spirit if you do not worship Him through faith in Jesus Christ. And it may be that you're here this morning and you've got ideas about God and and you may think, well, I've always believed in God. I've never had a problem with God. And, And in some ways, perhaps that's very sincere in your thinking, but you need to hear what the God whom you have positive thoughts toward says. He says that because He is holy and you and I are unholy, we cannot stand in His presence. We cannot enter into His presence with any kind of approval from Him. We need someone to deal with our sins. We need our sins to be forgiven. We need the righteousness that He requires provided for us. And God says, that which I require of you, I provide for you. I've done it in my Son. And He says, trust my Son. Turn away from the way you've been living and come to call Jesus Christ as Lord and enter into my presence. I want to ask you, friend, have you done that? Have you come to that place in your life where you could say, Jesus Christ is Lord? If not, then you're not able to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the first order of business in your life is to come to know this God through faith in His Son. Trust God. Jesus Christ. Believe Him. Take Him at His word. He will save you. He'll reconcile you to God. He'll bring you into the family of God so that you'll be able honestly to call God my Father. My Father who is in heaven. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, God made very plain both the costliness of of His presence and the purity that He requires to dwell in His presence. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God cast them out of His presence because He was holy. They no longer were. They lost their purity. They couldn't stay with Him any longer. The whole reason for the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the reason that animals were sacrificed day in and day out, week in, week out, season after season, year after year. The whole point of all those bloody sacrifices was to convince Israel and the world that with regard to this God, the true God, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all of those sacrifices were pointing to the one ultimate final sacrifice, the true Lamb of God who appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Who appeared, as John the Baptist said, as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And when Jesus died upon the cross, He died once for all to make atonement, to make a payment for our sin. With Jesus, we have reconciliation with God. With Jesus, we have access to God. With Jesus, we have assurance 
that our sins have been once and for all time separated from us and paid for by His death. The only way the true God can be worshipped is by coming to Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're going to worship this God, you must worship Him reverently. If you're going to worship Him reverently, you must worship Him through Christ. As we trust Christ, we remember the cost of our salvation. The seriousness of our sin against our holy God. And we also remember that with this holy God, there is forgiveness. Not forgiveness that comes cheaply to be taken lightly, but forgiveness that we can receive and in receiving, learn to fear Him. Because we're reminded what a great price was paid to secure it. And so we worship God reverently. Reverently. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your forgiveness for all of our vain, futile efforts in worship that we've offered up to you in the past. And we pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. That we would confess our sin against you and look to Jesus Christ for fresh forgiveness, for renewed zeal and strength, and to live sincerely and humbly as those who know that you are God in heaven and we are your creatures and we're of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.